Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChampaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Just like my episode about Toni Morrison's Beloved, number 78, this episode may not be for everyone. I'm discussing one of the most disturbing events in American civil rights history, and one I think most of us were not taught in school, even though Reverend Martin Luther King was involved. It involves racism and children, to put it bluntly. My language is measured and very careful, but it's an upsetting subject, that did not happen that long ago, so if this listen is not for you, take very good care of yourself, and I'll see you next time for a palate cleanser. If you want to think about whether or not to listen, this episode is about the event that led up to the Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education, that happened right here in Virginia and was started by teenagers. There is little violence in this episode other than a brief mention of the four little girls in Birmingham. It is really the story of one teenage girl changing the course of history and how more people should know her name. But things are stressful right now for everyone, and if you want to save this one for later and listen to something more fun, I understand, and I'll talk to you soon. Again, with the language. I am white, and therefore I don't even use historical language. At one point I wanted to quote Dr. King And then I carefully rewrote that section, and I talked around his quote. I used the edited quote. There are just some things I don't need to say. That's how my mama raised me. So no worries about that regard, about what you might hear here. So, you still with me? Let me tell you about the hero teenager, Barbara Johns. It's worth it. there might be cupcakes. This episode was supposed to come out at the end of Black History Month, but I kept getting bogged down by the research, by the reading. I I kept getting too mad to keep reading. Yeah, me. 
I struggled to read. That may be a first in my entire 50 years of life. <laughs> I was mad about what happened, and then I was mad that I was never taught what happened. With all my postgraduate work, I've likely had 18 or 19 years of school, and I've had specific classes along the way on the Constitution and American history. And it's like this episode was erased. And that pisses me off. Not only is this an incredibly important and serious issue and event, but a teenager, a 16-year-old, led the way to one of the most important Supreme Court cases ever. Every American kid learns about Brown versus Board of Education in school at some point. Sorry, that's my uh, assistant, Arlo. You hear the clicking, he's getting comfortable. <laughs> Let me go back. Every American kid learns about Brown versus Board of Education in school at some point. I'll bet none of them have been taught that it was first instigated by a high school student. First things first, though. I'm going to break this down plainly, the way I see it, and then we'll get into the details and the legalities and how the Reconstruction leads to Plessy versus Ferguson, which leads to a county just down the highway from me, and Brown, and brave, wonderful Barbara Johns. A lot of podcasts like to lead up to the big reveal, to deliberately bury the lead in order to shock the audience. Some are fabulous at it, creating masterful storytelling, like This American Life, which has been around since the 20th century and was my first podcast way back in 1999 or so. I could do that here and merrily lead you down the primrose path to the shocking truth. Storytelling. And I am a great storyteller, and I do say so myself. <laughs> but I can't. Why? Because I've spent days, weeks, sitting with this story angry. So angry that I've had trouble reading a memoir on the subject. I, me, I've had trouble reading. Not only angry at what happened and its continuing ramifications, but angry that I wasn't taught this in school. The North Carolina school system did not teach me the ugly and heroic details of the Brown case. And I even had a civics class in ninth grade where I was taught all about the branches of government and the Constitution. You'd think that when the 14th Amendment came up, the details of what happened not that far away from Charlotte would have come up. Nope. I had the best history teacher ever in 10th and 12th grades, Cheryl Curtis. He became a friend in my adulthood, and unfortunately he died recently. I wrote about him after his death on the website. I'll link that article in the show notes. But I took ancient history and world history with him. Sorry, that's our puppy Toby crying because he hears me talking. <laughs> I guess you could call him my intern. <laughs> our last topic covered together senior year was World War II as we ran out of time. I've never missed Mr. Curtis more intensely than researching this episode. I kept wanting to email him and ask questions or rant or ask his advice or support. So here it is, how I see it. And then we'll delve into facts. My viewpoint is, of course, as a white woman who just turned 50, who lives about 40 miles or so, depending on the route, from where this happened and has for 14 years and knew nothing about it until now and is flabbergasted. Now that we have my perspective, here's what I think happened. Prince Edward County, Virginia, when faced with school integration, had a temper tantrum. That's what I said. It had a temper tantrum that ruined lives and caused generational trauma. Yes, a temper tantrum. A big, ugly temper tantrum. Okay, now that I have that out of my system, let's get back to facts 
and I'll explain how the town of Farmville and the county of Prince Edward County and the American state of Virginia took public school away from its black citizens for four years. Yeah, four years. Approximately 1,700 black children were denied public school for four years because white adults were afraid of integration and had a temper tantrum. I've been mad for weeks, y'all. I'm sorry. Here's the basic chronological timeline of segregation and integration as it directly affects Prince Edward County and then upon which I'll elaborate. In 1857, the Dred Scott Supreme Court decision decided that black people were not and never would be eligible for American citizenship. Whew. After the Civil War, the period of Reconstruction was approximately from 1865 to 1877. The Supreme Court case Plessy v. Ferguson is dated 1896. The Black High School in Farmville, R.R. Moton, was built in 1923. The historic protest at Moton High School occurred in 1951. And then the Supreme Court handed down its Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954, three years later. The Stanley Plan, in response, was enacted in 1956. Two more Supreme Court cases were handed down in 1958, Cooper v. Aaron, and then in 1964, Griffin v. Prince Edward County. And for four years, black children did not have public school in Prince Edward County, Virginia, even while their parents paid taxes that were used to fund the private white school for a time. Segregation of the schools goes back to the idea of, quote, separate but equal meaning it was constitutional for different races to have different facilities if they were equal in service and quality, specifically constitutional under the 14th Amendment, which covers the rights of citizens and citizenship. I'm referring to Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which states, quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and are of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Basically, no state can pass a law that can take away the rights of the First Amendment, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the Fifth Amendment, due process of law. In 1857, the Supreme Court case Dred Scott v. Sanford decided that people of African ancestry were not and could not ever be eligible to be American citizens. Although, as I was shocked to learn, the Dred Scott case was never officially overturned in the court, the 14th Amendment gave equal citizenship and equal protection under the law to free slaves, passed in 1866 and ratified in 1868. This is a much more complicated, nuanced subject than this, involving states fighting back and forth and black codes, and it's enough for a whole other episode to do it justice. I'm just trying to outline the vileness of segregation in general and how the bomb of it went off down the road from me. The next step is the Supreme Court case Plessy v. Ferguson, 163 U.S. 537 in 1896. In 1892, Homer Plessy, a mixed-race person in New Orleans, deliberately violated the state segregation laws concerning train cars and seated himself in a white car and was promptly arrested. His lawyers asked his judge, John Ferguson, to dismiss the charges given that the charges were unconstitutional. 
The case went to the Supreme Court when, in its ruling against Plessy, coined the term separate but equal. And this became the law of the land. So now we go to Prince Edward County and its town, Farmville, Virginia. Yes, there really is a Farmville, like the game. Even its picturesque creek was segregated in the 50s. There were days for black children to play in the creek, and there were days for white children to play and fish in the creek. Yep. Before I continue a note, it's easy to dismiss the following events as ancient history. But it's not so. My parents were born in 1945 and 1950. They remember many of the national events that I'm going to mention. And the generational trauma that this caused is still occurring. An entire generation missed four years of school or were educated for four years away for their families. And some never returned to either school or their families. People were permanently damaged, and that was handed down to not only their children, but economically and psychologically to their communities. Approximately 1,700 black children. Expand that by families, by employers, and lost employment, lost possibilities, and then by children and grandchildren, by reactive attachment disorder from separation, and by illiteracy. And then you add in the lower middle class and poor white children whose families could not afford to attend the whites-only private academy. That's more children left behind. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, separate but equal. It was pernicious, and it was all-pervasive. I told Mom's experience in interfering with a blacks-only water fountain that wasn't working in my Family Trees episode. I've linked it in the show notes. Black people could not share anything in public with white people, not even the sidewalk. It was even understood that black people could not make eye contact with walking down the street with white people. People, quote-unquote, knew their place. And in this charged and unfair atmosphere, the black high school, Robert Russell Moton High, was built in Farmville as the county's first standalone public high school, about 70 years after the county established its public school system on the intersection of Main Street and Griffin Boulevard, 1939. Thanks to the unfair distribution of resources under separate but equal, it only had eight classrooms, one office, and a small auditorium, which would become famous about 20 years later. It did not have a gym, it did not have a cafeteria, and it had twice the students it had the space for. The teachers made much less than any of the white teachers in the entire county. The school is now a civil rights museum on the National Register of Historical Places, and its website is motonmuseum.org, M-O-T-O-N. R.R. Moton High School was named for an important citizen, Prince Edward's own who succeeded Booker T. Washington as the president of the renowned Tuskegee Institute, a historically black college founded in 1881 in Alabama. Tuskegee it's created the country's first all-black fighter fight squadron, the Tuskegee Airmen. I'll link to information about them and share photos from the Library of Congress on the website entry for this episode. Moton High School would become the epicenter of the civil rights movement, all because of a teenager. By the 1950s, the inadequate school had become unbearable. I'll share photos that were presented as evidence to the Supreme Court on the website entry for this episode. Desperately needed add-on classrooms were basically nothing but chicken coops, constructed with chicken wire and tar paper. 
They had to be heated with old-fashioned wood stoves. Think a little house in the prairie. Students had to wear their coats all day. One extension classroom was a dilapidated, unused school bus parked in the schoolyard, missing some windows. Some students didn't even have desks to sit at during the school day. Some teachers didn't either, and some teachers didn't have blackboards. The so-called auditorium was just a large room with folding chairs. The school still didn't have a cafeteria. However, the white public schools continued to improve and adapt as technology improved. Better lighting, better phones, updated security, new sports equipment, new buses, and so on. Meanwhile, many of the Moton students didn't even have busing and had to walk an inordinate distance to school if they didn't ride on the unsafe rickety bus. Not everyone even had a textbook, and some textbooks were missing pages. Barbara Rose John attended R.R. Moton High School, a bookworm who loved to go out into the woods to read and think. She was the niece of civil rights leader Reverend Vernon Johns, and Barbara had spent a lot of time reading about and thinking about inequality and a lot of time talking to her uncle. She knew she and her classmates deserved and needed better. It was so bad that somebody was going to get sick or hurt, and people were already getting left behind educationally. She had seen firsthand the difference in other schools when traveling with the debate club and had been humiliated for other clubs to travel and compete at Moton. She knew about her uncle's burgeoning work with the Reverend Martin Luther King, and she decided that her age, 16 years old, was not a factor. She needed to take action. Her uncle, Reverend Vernon Johns, was a major influence on Reverend Martin Luther King, both professionally and personally. King described Johns as, quote, a brilliant preacher with a creative mind, and, quote, a fearless man who never allowed an injustice to come to his attention without speaking out against it. Amazing praise from an amazing man. Reverend Johns was the preacher that Reverend King succeeded at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, and from which Reverend King led his civil rights campaign. Barbara took some classmates that she carefully learned she could trust with her nascent ideas about a protest, to her uncle's study, and they talked about civil rights protests, about sit-ins versus walkouts, and most importantly, about safety. And then Barbara and her friends cultivated their plan. On April 23, 1951, which, apropos of nothing except putting this again into recent history context, was my dad's sixth birthday, they created a ruse to make certain that the principal would not get in trouble, which touched me quite deeply. But calling into the school to report that students were seen playing hooky in downtown Farmville, and could the principal retrieve them so the police wouldn't have to get involved? Once the principal was out of the building, the students involved quickly assembled in the rickety and inadequate Moton High School Auditorium. Barbara had called the school together with notes in the principal's name sent to each classroom. Her initials were the same as his, so it was technically plausible deniability and not outright forgery. Barbara took the stage and yelled for all assembled teachers to leave that they did not want to hear what was going to be said for their own good. The teachers, who knew Barbara to be an upstanding student, trusted her, and almost to a single one left the room. Then the 450 Moton High School students organized and walked out for a better and actually equal school. These kids, the youngest, were ninth graders, and think about that for a minute. It's easy to throw around numbers like that, but we were all 14 and 15 years old in ninth grade. 
maybe the odd 13-year-old. Imagine being 14 years old and knowing what you're doing is so dangerous that the clan might get involved. It's so dangerous that you have to exclude the adults you admire because they could get fired, arrested, or injured and being so calm and collected that you do so. These kids, what they initiated just down the highway from me with a careful whisper campaign from teenager to teenager that led to a dangerous protest that became one of the most famous Supreme Court cases in the history of the United States, and it changed the nature and culture of our country forever. And even though I took or acquired civics class in ninth grade, when I was their age, only about 150 miles from where it happened in North Carolina, I was never, ever taught this. The 450 teenagers marched to the city courthouse and protested their untenable school situations. They were threatened with expulsions, but protests continued for two weeks, and the NAACP was called in for support. And this is the birth of the lawsuits. 117 of their families decided to file a lawsuit against the school board for the conditions their children suffered at school. And that lawsuit would become one of the five in Brown v. Board of Education. It was filed on May 23, 1951. It was called Dorothy E. Davis et al. versus County School Board of Prince Edward County, Virginia. Docket number Civ A number 1333, case citation 103F Supplement 337, 1952. Named for the ninth grader at the top of the list of the students. Her family was the first to sign on for the lawsuit. As it was denied, the lawyers supported by the NAACP just kept filing, and it climbed the court structure. The district court rejecting it stated in its ruling, quote, We have found no harm nor hurt to either race. It finally reached the Supreme Court, joining four other states' cases as Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. 347 U.S. 483, 1954. Briggs v. Elliott from South Carolina. Gebhardt v. Belton from Delaware. Boiling v. Sharp from Washington, D.C. And Brown v. the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. The decision of the Supreme Court on May 17, 1954 was unanimous. The segregation was unconstitutional even if the segregated schools were equal in quality striking down part of Plessy versus Ferguson. If a law scholar can explain to me how it was only part of Plessy, I would really appreciate that. I am but a mere um, master's in education and counseling, and I'm not going to try. But Brown does state that segregation in schools violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. This was Justice Earl Warren's first major opinion, and in it he wrote, quote, separating children solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely to ever be undone. So, 1954. Hooray! It's all over! Prince Edward County is going to be fixed, right? Right? Not for years. And not because of inertia or funds or other human reasons, but because of active, devious, awful reasons. That temper tantrum I led the episode with. Here we go. Prince Edward County was named for a pampered, privileged white man, ironically, 
Prince Edward, the second son of Frederick, the Prince of Wales, and the younger brother of King George III of the United Kingdom. His Wikipedia page makes a huge deal about his diverse childhood schooling, which the kids of his county did not receive. Because of the actions of white men and women before Brown, during separate but equal, and in their stark reaction to the Brown decision. Quote, The only places on earth not to provide free public education are communist China, North Vietnam, Sarawak, Singapore, British Honduras, and Prince Edward County, Virginia. U.S. Attorney Robert F. Kennedy, March 19, 1963. Note, 1963. Nine years after the Brown decision. Yep, this gets dark really, really quickly. Here's the temper tantrum. The white parents formed an organization called ugh, the Defenders of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberty. And eventually, with the new governor's support, shut down the county's public school system rather than integrate. They shut down the public school system. They shut down the public school system. There were no public schools in Prince Edward County, Virginia for four years. Four years. For four years. And again, never learned about this at school. The white adults shut down public school for four years. I don't think this can be emphasized and repeated enough. And if that isn't a temper tantrum, then I don't know what is. The Defenders grew into the Prince Edward School Foundation, and a private school for whites only was quickly set up. It wasn't great that first year, operating slapdash out of homes and church buildings. So all children in Prince Edward were damaged educationally as well as socially. And don't get me wrong, I firmly believe that every minute kids are segregated or living in deliberately non-multicultural communities, they are damaged in some way, shape, or form. People need to see, interact with, learn from, and love people that are different from them. Kristen Green, who wrote the history book slash memoir, Something Needs to Be Done About Prince Edward County, dealing with the fact that her grandfather was one of the main organizing defenders, only knew one black person growing up, and that was Elsie, who cleaned her grandparents' home. She only had a black student in her class when she went to high school, and then only one, and she definitely feels she lost out from having such a, excuse the phrase, white upbringing. I know how she feels, though I struggle to put language to it, so I continue to add anti-racism and critical race theory works to my reading list. In my small elementary school, which I've discussed on the podcast, I only had two black students in my class the entire time, and both of them my friends. In my country middle school, 6th to 8th grade, I remember it as a sea of white faces. And I remember casual racism just being an undercurrent of the culture. So, no public school for four years, with no concessions for anyone, just doors shuttered. Student-athletes at Moton High School were told to clean out their lockers. Black parents were tasked with telling their kids that school might just be over. Families that had the resources sent their children away to stay with relatives or friends to go elsewhere to school. Sometimes those kids never returned to their families. Or they did return, but they resented their families for sending them away, not fully understanding what was happening, ruining relationships forever. Some black adults set up the equivalent of training schools in basements and living rooms and churches, trying to keep the children up on their basics and reading every day while they waited to see what would happen next. Some teens dropped out, 
Lots of kids just stayed home with no stimulation because their parents had to keep working for four years. And the ramifications were horrific, and they continued to affect all of us. That was approximately 1,700 black children, and then you add in the lower middle class and poor white children who could not afford the tuition for the private white school. Think of all those kids who had school yanked away from them for four years. Not just the education, but the socialization that goes along with going to school with your peers every day. A study was done in 1963 by Michigan State University researchers, led by Dr. Robert L. Green and funded by the U.S. Office of Education, on how the black children of Farmville had been affected by this public school blackout, by this, as I call it, white temper tantrum. I'm going to quote Green's book verbatim on this because the results were so shocking and I want to make sure I get it right. Quote, they would soon learn that the illiteracy rate of black students aged 5 to 22 had jumped from 3% to 23%. They found 7-year-old children who couldn't hold a pencil correctly or make an X on paper. Some didn't know how old they were. Others couldn't communicate. This made me so angry I had to stop reading the book for a while and stop researching this episode altogether. It's part of the reason this episode didn't come out properly during Black History Month. I had trouble sitting with that. I knew about wretched disparity in white and black education. I, I read Jonathan Cazal's work in grad school. His book, Savage Inequality, is something else. Uh, and I felt the same kind of shocked helplessness then. I've linked to that book in the show notes. I actually needed a palate cleanser, but not just any. I needed one that would encourage me to continue. So I rewatched the movie Hairspray. <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but bear with me. I watched the original with Divine and Blondie, thank you. And it helped a great deal. And the reason I thought of it was reading about George Wallace in Green's book. I didn't realize quite what a sharp satire Hairspray is. The racist and segregationist chant that Sonny Bono and Blondie's characters try to get started is taken directly word for word from George Wallace's acceptance speech as governor of Alabama in 1963. Huh. George Wallace is infamous for literally standing in the doorway to keep two black students, Vivian Malone and Jane Hood, from integrating the University of Alabama. Now in the intro, I mentioned the Stanley plan. This was unbelievable to me. The hits keep coming. The Stanley Plan was an official plan drawn up by Virginia Governor Thomas B. Stanley. In September 1956, Governor Stanley, galvanized by Senator Harry F. Byrd Sr. and his call for, quote, massive resistance against school integration, passed this plan, which was 13 statutes that would ensure that school segregation would continue in Virginia and that the outreach of the Virginia chapter of the NAACP would be as curbed as possible in its outreach and power. Remember, the NAACP had been supporting the protesting teenagers and their family, families in filing suit and continuing to fight all the way to the Supreme Court. So they pissed a lot of white people off. The NAACP and the citizens of Virginia fought back. Part of the Stanley Plan was found to be unconstitutional in January 1957, and most of it had been found so by 1960. In response, the new governor, J. Lindsay Almond, suggested a new response to integration of, quote, passive resistance. The Supreme Court found that plan unconstitutional as well, 
first in 64, and then more in 68. Mm -mm -mm. Meanwhile, during this gubernatorial chaos, in 1963, Bobby Kennedy was calling Prince Edward County, quote, a disgrace to our country. The problem was that the federal government could not assist with the school. Federal government in the United States cannot operate schools or help finance them. But thankfully, the federal government could assert pressure on the Virginian government. And with all the local protests, Barbara John had taught local youth and adults how to peacefully protest and how to safely protest. And they had done so at segregated churches and eating establishments all over Farmville. And with protests all over Virginia, quote, Bloody Sunday had just occurred in Danville, down the highway from Farmville and near the North Carolina border where fire hoses had been turned on people protesting the school shutdown in Prince Edward County. And the national attention, well, the governor gave in. Massive resistance had not worked. Passive resistance had not worked. And he announced schools would open in the county in September. A board of directors, a new school board, was formed of three white men and three black men, with former University of Virginia President Colgate W. Darden Jr. running it. They would set up an independent school in four public school buildings that had previously been abandoned when the shut in the shutdown. The Prince Edward Free School Association would receive grants from the Ford Foundation, the Fields Foundation, and the National Education Association, plus donations from parent-teacher organizations from all across the country. They would also search for good teachers from all across the United States. Two weeks after the governor made his announcement, Prince Edward youth and adults boarded a bus and headed to join the March on Washington. I wasn't taught this in school either, but Reverend King addressed Prince Edward in his I Have a Dream speech. They all stood near him at the Lincoln Memorial, carrying a giant sign with Prince Edward on it. I read the speech in history class and in several English classes, both in high school and college, but the huge role Prince Edward County played in the writing of his speech was, to my mind, erased in my education. I want to quote Reverend King directly to point out how you referred to the continual protests that the Farmville students had been undertaking that summer. Their summer of civil unrest had finally reopened the school. I want to point out how I was taught this speech over and over and not taught what he was talking about, not taught about Prince Edward County not having school. But I edit this quote because I'm white and there are words that I don't need to say even though they're historically accurate. Dr. King directly acknowledged the tireless work of Barbara Johns and her fellow protesters in his speech by saying they had dealt with the sweltering summer of legitimate discontent. He went on to say, Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. On September 16, 1963, what was now known as the Free School opened, but under a pow and some more fear than before. Because on September 15, 1963, a bomb had gone off in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, killing four black girls, 14-year-old Addie Mae Collins, 14-year-old Cynthia Wesley, 14-year-old Carol Robinson, and 11-year-old Denise McNair. 14 other people were injured, including Addie Mae's sister, 12-year-old Sarah Collins, who lost one of her eyes. In the riots that followed, two more black children were killed, 13-year-old Virgil Ware and 16-year-old Johnny Robinson. 
The 16th Street Baptist Church had been a meeting place for protesters and civil rights organizers like Dr. King. The week prior, three white schools had been integrated in Birmingham. Some white families in Farmville were showing support, not violence. Gordon Moss, the dean of Longwood Co uh, College, now Longwood University, which is in, in that area of Farmville, who had never supported the school closings, was the very first to enroll his white son in the free school. I want to quote this from Green's book because it really struck me. When his father asked him to consider leaving boarding school to attend the free schools, Dickie Moss immediately agreed. His father warned him that classroom time would be devoted to helping the black children catch up. He told his son that he might not do a lot of book learn in that year, but that he would learn about people from the experience. The first day was both solemn and lovely. The students gathered around the flagpole of what had been R.R. Moton High School, renamed Mary Branch Number 2, as the American flag was raised for the first time. The first school bell, singling the start of classes, rang for 30 seconds as a tribute for the four years that had been lost. I have to admit that I, when I read that, I shut Green's memoir and cried. 1,600 students, most of them black, were back in school, more than half of them for the very first time. The teachers, which, like I said, had been recruited from all over the country, were wonderful and set up amazing opportunities for the students. They took field trips all over Virginia to historical sites, and they went to New York City, where they toured the United Nations, and more special to them, I'm certain, got to have lunch in Jackie Robinson's house. The teachers made certain to add in black history events like that wherever they could to install pride where it had been taken. On May 25, 1964, the Supreme Court in Griffin v. County School Board of Prince Edward County found the school, public school closings to be unconstitutional. Quote, the, school, the court ruled that the county's decision to close all public schools while providing tuitions, grants, and vouchers to white children to attend private schools denied black children equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Ten years and eight days after the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Ten years and eight days. But there was one more temper tantrum to be had. You'll notice I mentioned tuition vouchers and grants. Yep, it's always about following the money. There was some weird money and stuff involved that I'll bet still hasn't been untangled. Maybe even using the white private school to launder money? Who knows? All I know is rich families were getting grants and vouchers. And that's hinky. So. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Griffin comes down, and a deadline is set for the financial shenanigans to end. The night before that deadline, all the influential white families get phone calls from the defenders. Green remembers the phone ringing and her grandmother being giddy. That's her word, quote-unquote, giddy. A bunch of the white academy parents went to the bank in the wee hours of the morning, just before the deadline, 
because there was money left over and they didn't want the county to get it for the new integrated public schools. 1,250 secret grant checks were cut to white parents at 2 a.m. the morning before the law went into effect. Can you believe? So gross. That morning, all of Farmville's banks, all of them, opened extremely early so all of those parents could cash those technically illegal checks before the law went into effect at 9 a.m. Disgusting. In 1966, a federal court caught up with those greedy parents and ordered them to repay those checks. Many couldn't, and some flat out refused. With $67,000 still missing, in 1967, the remaining scoff laws were sued. Good. Though those greedy white parents wouldn't have noticed. In 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law, and as he said, quote, Let us close the springs of racial poison. I was pleased to find out that the Commonwealth of Virginia has been working to make reparations to those children that went four years without education. Ken Woodley of the Farmville Herald newspaper started a writing campaign for a scholarship program for everyone denied an education. His dozens of articles were carried by newspapers all over the state, and his writing campaign paid off. He lobbied the legislature and the governor and happily found support for his idea. The Virginia General Assembly in 2004 set up a scholarship program to assist anyone that has been locked out of school in Prince Edward County or by collateral damage of the Stanley Plan and massive resistance or passive resistance. Ugh, I don't even like saying that. The scholarships have been awarded for GED programs, money for college, and job training. The money is available for the children and grandchildren of those shut out of school as well, addressing the generational trauma caused by such a loss. It's called the Brown Scholarship, and the link to apply is in my show notes. I checked and it is still open. It is open this year. Quote, Where would I have been if my foundation had been built? Ricky Brown, who missed four years of school in Farmville. I want to tell you more about Barbara Rose Johns, leaving you on a hopeful note, along with the reparations. After this episode about untaught history and an uneducated and psychologically damaged generation, and all this fruitless hate and racism. After two episodes on books about racism in these heavy times, I owe you hope. There is good news. To quote her Wikipedia profile, quote, After the strike, Barbara Johns lived out the rest of her life in relative peace. Living in Philadelphia, she earned a degree in library science from Drexel University. She married William Powell, and she had five children with him. She had a commitment to education for the rest of her life because of what happened to her, and she worked for the Philadelphia school system as a librarian until her death in 1991. Her legacy has been honored by her home state of Virginia. In 2017, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe officially named the Virginia Office of the Attorney General after Barbara Rose Johns Powell for her tremendous impact on the national civil rights movement. In December 2020, Virginia's Commission on Historical Statues in the United States Capitol voted to replace the removed statue of Robert E. Lee with a statue of Barbara.
I'm sorry that choked me up reading it. In 2008, a statue of her and her fellow students protesting was installed in our capital, Richmond, with Barbara's quote, it seemed like reaching for the moon at the base of the statue. Along with Thurgood Marshall's quote, the legal system can force open doors and sometimes even knock down walls, but it cannot build bridges. That job belongs to you and me. Before Marshall was the first African-American justice of the Supreme Court, he successfully argued an extremely important case before the Supreme Court as an attorney. Brown versus Board of Education. Thank you for listening. This has been some tough research for me, reckoning with what my chosen home state did that not that long ago, and reckoning with this unconscionable gap in my education. There's been some painful feelings attached that I can't quite name. Perhaps grief? Some palate cleansers are coming, as promised, because I know both the beloved episode and this one have been intense listening. House of Leaves episodes, of course, I owe you those, but also a surprise. A 25th anniversary rewatch of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think that'll be fun for all of us. I'm going to be rewatching and writing episodes not only from the perspective of a now 50-year-old who was 25 when it started, but also as a psychologist slash counselor. I've already ordered two scholarly examinations, so yes, there will be books. And I have some friends who have written official novelization spinoffs that I might be able to talk into joining me on the show. This will be a long haul, of course, but I think it'll be a lot of fun. I hope I've done this subject justice. Whatever lack there was was mine alone, my limited perspective, my white privilege, and I apologize wholeheartedly. I strove very hard to overcome it, to explore this injustice and its ramifications. If you would like to let me know where I fell short, I'd love to discuss it. Absolutely. Please hit me up on Twitter at MightBeCupcakes, on Patreon, on Patreon at Patreon.com slash ThereMightBeCupcakes, in the Facebook group, on Reddit at r slash ThereMightBeCupcakes, or privately by emailing me at Carla at ThereMightBeCupcakes.com. I am humbly open to discussing it and hearing from you, and I'm I thank you for doing so. As far as communication, I have started a stuff a sub stack for the podcast. <laughs> it's kind of hard to say. I have started a sub stack for the podcast, <laughs> and I'm so excited about it. There's a free level and a paid level. Basically, you can either get messages in your email or you can use the sub stack app. The free level receives podcast updates, website articles as I post them, and occasional entries that I'll send that just don't fit on the podcast. You know, stuff I want to talk about but just not quite an episode. The paid level receives all the above plus longer entries and more private entries that again just don't fit on the podcast necessarily. I just wrote one that was a list of things that are making me happy right now. That one was free and then I wrote a more private one about stuff going on and that one was paid. I've already, like I said, I've already written two articles for it. I've turned on the seven-day trial for the paid version so you can take a peek before making a decision. Existing patrons get 75% off the $5 a month for the paid. The coupon link is posted at Patreon. And thank you as always for supporting this little podcast with whatever you do, clicking through my links, being a Patreon, or signing up for the paid Substack. It, this is my outlet to the outside world as a disabled person who, frankly, can't work. 
you know, and talking to you in written or spoken word and the little things that you do for me, just they make my day. You know, knowing that you listen, knowing that the little things I do mean something to you, make my day. Thank you again, and I will see you next time with either House of Leaves or Buffy or both. Everybody take a deep breath after that. That was dark. There Might Be Cupcakes is written, edited, and published by Carla Pettigrew Huffsteller since April of 2017. It is hosted by Spreaker for My Heart Radio. There Might Be Cupcakes updates may be found at theremightbecupcakes.com and theremightbecupcakes.substack.com. There Might Be Cupcakes theme song and stinger is by the band Haunted Me, Use With Permission. All of the content is copyrighted by Carla Pettigrew Huffsteller. Please contact for permission to use. Thank you for listening.